In our series, Brick and Mortar, uh, we're going back to our foundations, as you know. And for the past seven weeks, we've looked at our foundations in the gospel. We've looked at topics like uh, kingdom and grace, justification, new covenant, reconciliation, atonement, salvation. And all of these parts of the gospel help us get a sense of its whole. We want to see the goodness of God in display in Christ in this good news of great joy. And our focus now is going to shift from the gospel to the church because the gospel is always embodied in a people. We could even say that the gospel creates a people. It creates the church. And so we're shifting from the message of the gospel to the people of the gospel. And just as we've laid then the foundations of the gospel over the next eight weeks or seven weeks, actually, we're going to lay the foundations of the church, what it means, the basics of being disciples of Jesus Christ together. Uh, There's quite a few metaphors, actually, throughout Scripture that describe the nature of the church. There's the body of Christ, the people of God, the temple of the Spirit, and we're going to look at each in this series. But for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the body of Christ. Uh, There's a head, there's members, and there's a fullness And we're going to have a sermon on each of those. And so today, as we lay a brick in the foundation as the church, we're going to look at the head, the head of the church. And so I want to explore two things this morning. Again, as you know, if I go from three points to two, it just means the two are longer. Uh, The head and the body. That's what we're going to look at this morning, the head and the body. So let's begin with our first point, the head. If you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, Uh, There's two places in which he describes Jesus Christ as the head of his body. He does this in Colossians and again in Ephesians. And so we're going to look at each of these passages. And as we take them in, I want to try to imagine sitting before a work of art together. Imagine sitting in a chair before a great painting and taking in the details. Uh, That's what these passages really are. And so I'm going to point out some of the details, but I'm going to also try not to over-explain them because sometimes we just need to enjoy the beauty of what we see. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Colossians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Uh, Scholars call this a Christ hymn. It's composed in a way that looks like a poem or a song or a liturgy. And so we can actually imagine the ancient church would recite these very words together. And they may have even used these words to introduce people to the Christian faith. And this is what Paul writes. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's a lot to take in there. And what I want to do is couple this passage with a painting by the visual artist Andy Perez. Just take a moment to to take this painting in. As we gaze upon this image of Christ, the first thing that Paul would want us to see is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Paul clarifies what he means a few verses later. He says, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in other words, if you want to know God, if you want to see God, if you want to know what God is all about, look no further than Jesus. God in the flesh, God among us, Emmanuel. God was not with Jesus in part, but in full. The fullness of God, everything that God is, was pleased to dwell in Christ, in him. This sets Jesus apart from every other religious teacher. You know, other religions will point to their teachers and founders, but will primarily focus on the teachings. And quite possibly, their own teachers fall short of their teachings, but that's okay. You could say, hey, don't worry about that. Look at the substance and the goodness of the teaching. There could still be merit to it. But the movement around Jesus goes much further than this. From the very beginning, it said, if you look at Christ, you look at God. Jesus himself made claims to be God. And this is why his critics accused him of blasphemy. No sane, ordinary person can make this claim, of course, unless God dwelt fully among them and in them and through them. If you look to Jesus, you look to the visible expression of God. And Paul goes on to say, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that Jesus was created. That's how we might think to hear that. As a person of the Trinity, Jesus as the Son of God, he's eternally begotten of God the Father. He wasn't created at some point in eternity past. The Son has always existed with the Father. So firstborn means something else. Firstborn in the ancient world has everything to do with entitlements and rights and inheritance. So Paul is saying that Jesus has all the rights, all the entitlements, all and the inheritance of creation. It is his. All of creation belongs to Christ. So firstborn is a metaphor Paul uses to help emphasize the lordship of Jesus. And Paul, he goes on to say, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Again, this can't be true of a mere human. You know, if Jesus only happened to be a man, perhaps even a prophet who is just very holy, even amazingly holy, this still could not be true of him. You can't say this of a person. Even if Jesus was a man who somehow attained divinity in his life, even then this still couldn't be true of him. All things, Paul says, were created through Christ and for Christ. Paul goes on to say, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Quite simply, Jesus is the glue of creation. He holds it all together and everything, including you, including me, exists for his sake. And after all this, Paul then tacks on and Jesus is the head of the body of the church. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Paul goes on to say, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, says Paul, so that in everything he might be preeminent, or as other translations put it, that in everything he might have supremacy. And so Jesus, he's the key to creation. 
Everything begins with him and ends with him, even death. Because of his resurrection, he's now the firstborn of the dead. Again, firstborn is about rights and entitlements and inheritance. And so to say he's the firstborn of the dead, it's not to say, oh, he was just the first in line at the resurrection. First off, we know that wasn't true. Other people have been raised from the dead by Christ before he was raised. Of course, he was raised to eternal life. They died a second death. I digress. That's COVID brain happening right now. Um, It means firstborn, Jesus is the rightful inheritor of the dead. He's the rightful inheritor of the dead. He inherits and retains the rights to their souls and resurrection. So he is the key to a beginning without an end. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the key to a beginning without an end, eternal life. And then finally, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the gospel in a nutshell. God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself and making peace or shalom in creation. God is restoring the world and us back into harmony and wholeness in and through Christ. So obviously much, 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 much more could be said about anything in this passage But I simply want us to see that in this ancient hymn or liturgy recited by Paul, he is unashamedly exalting Jesus as having supremacy above all things. This is the image of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Here's what Paul writes. I pray that you may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's work through this portrait of Jesus in the same way. And we'll couple it with this painting by the Renaissance artist Sandro Botticelli. Paul, the first thing he wants us to see is the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Did that phrase jump out to anyone? The immeasurable greatness of God's power. Other translations say the incomparable greatness. You know, the power of God in Christ, it can't be measured. It can't even be compared. You know, ordinarily, in the the way we would measure or try to describe power is to describe it by comparing it to something else. So you could say a hurricane is one-thousandth of the power of a nuclear warhead, and a nuclear warhead one-millionth of the power of the explosion on the surface of the sun. Can you believe that? That's crazy. The sun has one billionth of the power of an exploding supernova. And Alistair, one trillionth of the modern Wisconsin style of Preston. (laughs) But how do we describe the power of God? Do we say his power is the power of a hundred supernovas? A million supernovas? A billion, billion supernovas? How 
do you describe the power of God? What measurement do you use? Do you just say God is 15? Well, 15 what? Meters? Pounds? Like, how do you describe? And so what Paul's saying is, no, it's an immeasurable greatness. There is no scale. God's never been on the scale. He transcends the scale. And this is where I think it gets really interesting. Paul says, think about the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Where is it on display? Where do you see it at work? The resurrection. Paul says the immeasurable greatness of God's power is on display in the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things Paul could choose, he didn't say, look at creation. Look at the supernovas. Look at the innumerable stars. Think about the galaxies. Think about the vastness of it all. Paul doesn't say as he just did in Colossians. Think about how Jesus created all things and sustained all things and how all things are for him. I mean, that's power. But he doesn't point to creation. He says, look at the resurrection. This is where we see the immeasurable power of God on display. Well, why would you point to the resurrection? Well, think about it for a moment with me. What is one power that trumps all powers in human existence? What is one power that trumps all powers in human existence? You know, there are all kinds of things that are astonishingly powerful that can harm us. I've mentioned, you know, hurricanes, the sun, but not one of them touches on the power of death. It doesn't matter who you are or what you try to do to delay it. Death is no respecter of persons, and it will not be thwarted despite what transhumanists say in California. Sorry, Madison. I, I don't know if you're a transhumanist or not. But. <laughs> it is the total and complete power of human, over human life, death. But God has power over death. You know, the most powerful among us we can't touch on this sort of power. God raised Christ from the dead because he's immeasurably powerful. The, God, the power of God is fully on display in Christ. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that now exalts Jesus above all things. Paul says, God raised Christ from the dead. God seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. Jesus is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There is no higher place. No one can be exalted any higher than this. Nothing can touch him. And so as a result, Paul says, Jesus is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Therefore, God has put all things under his feet. So everything, Everything in point of reference to Jesus is under him. He has authority over it all. As Paul says in Colossians, over everything he has supremacy. And this is so because of the immeasurable, incomparable power of God at work in and through him. I know, I know, I know. I'm belaboring the point. You know, we've dwelt on these details long enough, but how can you not be amazed? Like I realize I'm not filling this in with illustrations and stories, because I actually think what Paul says here carries its own. It's amazing. And the most amazing thing that Paul says for us then is in Colossians, Christ is the head of the body, the church. And here in Ephesians, Paul says, and God gave 
him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, think of everything we've just contemplated about Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God, the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through him, sustained by him, and are for him. He's the firstborn from the dead, and everything is preeminent and supreme. All things, all things, all things are being reconciled by him. The immeasurable greatness of God's power is on display in his resurrection. He's been raised and seated at the right hand of God. He's exalted above every single name. Everything is under him. This is the portrait of Jesus that we see here in Colossians and Ephesians. And then we're told in Ephesians, and God gave him as head over all things to the church. God gave him to the church. God gave him to us. Jesus, as we've just read, he's utterly transcendent. He's above all things. We can't possibly do justice to who he is with words, even metaphor. And yet he's immensely imminent. He's close. He's given to us. I mean, really think about it. This portrait of Christ that we just gazed upon, he is given fully to us. How can Christianity ever become boring or drab or painfully moralistic? I mean, think about who's been given to us, and you'll never live a boring day the rest of your life. A mundane day, sure, but not a boring day, because it'll be a day with Christ, and his immeasurable power is at work among those of us who believe. I mean, wake up. This is incredible news. I haven't even gotten a single amen. amen. Maybe I should go over it all again. <laughs> but let's get to our second point, the body. You know, it's impossible to understand the church apart from the gospel. And a lot of people have opinions about the church. This is what the church should be or do or look like or act. And, and that's a, a worthwhile conversation if you like having that conversation. But there's something far more important. We cannot understand who the church is apart from its head. The head defines the body. And so this is why we spent so much time exploring the basics of the gospel, because the gospel is the basis of who we are as a church. We are a gospel people created in and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says Jesus is the head of his body, the church. So this means that Jesus is the defining, inspiring, ruling, guiding, and sustaining power of his body. So I want to draw out two implications of what that means for us. For the first implication is for how we approach our identity. You know, almost everybody at some point in their life asks the question, who am I? Who am I? And if we're members of the body, the question is no longer who am I, but whose are we? Whose are we? Now, everybody wants to know, almost everybody wants to know, who are they? Who am I? And they want more than the autobiographical details of their life. They're looking for some substance, some purpose, some underlying meaning. But as the body of Christ, the question of identity no longer has to be hopelessly self-centered. Identity is not solely a self-construct or self-defined or something we discover within ourselves. As Christians, we are not in pursuit of some authentic self buried within ourselves. I want to free you from that pressure. 
It is a burden no one can carry because there is nothing to be found if you go on that search. The distinctiveness of ourselves, it's not unimportant. Don't don't mishear me on that. God loves what makes you particular. But we discover who we are in another. We find ourselves in Christ. Now, the gospel, it has a lot to say about our identity. We could say we're beloved, we're adopted, we're accepted, we're children of God, we're saints. But we're also his body. And this is part of our identity too. And it doesn't carry that same like personal, romantic, heartfelt force. Like if someone's like, who are you? And you're like, I'm a member of a body. I mean, it doesn't have that kind of force. And yet I would say it is probably one of the most important parts of our identity as the people of God. It's immensely important. When you were a child, do you remember taking like the pride you used to take in your parents? I mean, of course, it was always balanced out with a healthy dose of embarrassment too. Like my dad wore like sweatpants with holes and flip-flops everywhere all season long, like even to pick me up at school. It was horrifying. Uh, But do you remember that, that feeling of pride that you'd feel for your parents? Like, I used to love introducing my friends to my mom as a kid because I couldn't wait for them to experience her warmth and kindness. I felt joy in saying, like, this is my mom. And I'd love to hear her say, like, hi, love. And I still love introducing people to my mom. And, and maybe you didn't have this experience with your parents. So have you ever felt that then the joy and the pride of being friends with someone or knowing someone um, that, that, that fills you with that pride? Like, I know them. That they, it fills you with like this surprising self-confidence that comes with saying like, I'm with them, I belong to them, I'm part of their life. You know, we can take joy in who a person is and our attachment to them, and in doing so, for a moment, it defers the attention away from us without diminishing us, but lifts us up and lifts others up as well. You see, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you can move on from asking who am I, to asking, whose are we? And we say, look to the head. Look at the portrait of who you've just seen. This is who you're attached to through faith. You can delight and take joy in being his body. Who are you? You're his body. This radically changes our identity. I hope you see that. We are his body. He is the head. And the second implication of that reality for us is that it changes what we do with our bodies. Paul teases this implication out in his letter to the Corinthians. He writes, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So in addressing issues around sexual immorality in Corinth, Paul offers a theology of the body, and that's what I want to focus on. Don't worry, the sermon on sexual immorality, it's coming down the pipeline, but not now. He says radical things, doesn't he? Your body is meant for the Lord. Your body is a member of Christ. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. 
Don't see the Vancouver Sun writing that headline anytime soon. You are not your own. Therefore, sexual immorality isn't appropriate for any body that is part of the body of Christ. But it doesn't stop there, of course. Elsewhere, Paul's going to go on and say, we should put away all impurity and evil desire and greed and gluttony and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouths. Why? Because our bodies belong to another. Our bodies belong to Christ. And his very life can manifest in our bodies. And so he defines who we are and how we live together as his body. What I want you to see is that Paul cannot conceive of a disembodied spirituality or some Gnostic religion in which the body is of no importance. You know, following Jesus involves our minds and it it involves ideas, but it doesn't stop there. It's an embodied faithfulness. Our bodies, our physical bodies are meant for God. And everything we do in them matters. And so we want our bodies to reflect his body, his death, his resurrection. And so instead of living however we please in our bodies, we present our bodies to Jesus. We die with him to sin. We crucify our flesh, says Paul. We, we put away all these desires that run contrary to the life of Jesus. We fumble at it. We're not great at it, but we do our best to keep dying to these things. Why? Because our bodies are not our own. They were bought with a price. They belong to Jesus. And just as we die with him to sin, we're raised with him to new life. There is a new way of being in Christ in your body that is possible. So let's get practical. How do we give our bodies to Christ? Paul tells us how to do this in another letter. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he, uh, he writes, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but tr be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So since our bodies are not our own, it makes sense that Paul calls us to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. It's interesting. Bodies is actually plural, but sacrifice singular. So this is something we do together as the church. We take all of our bodies and we offer them to God as a unified sacrifice together. And this transformation, it comes in part through the renewal of our minds, through the knowledge of God in Christ, the renewal of our minds through embodying the message of the gospel and conforming our lives to the instructions of God in Scripture but as a favorite professor of mine used to say, the problem with living sacrifices, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And I love that in a really sad kind of way. But it really does get to the issue. Often we want the benefits of Christ. We want the gospel. We want redemption. We want forgiveness of sins. We want a new community. We want the benefits of Christ. We want the benefits of Christ because they sound pretty good, even from the outside looking in. But we want the benefits without the supremacy of Christ. We want the benefits without having to have a Lord. And this is why we crawl off the altar. We want to keep our bodies for ourselves and live how we please. We want the benefits of the gospel without having to sacrifice. We don't want to come under authority. Now, on some level, this is because 
A mistrust of authority is in the cultural air we breathe. It's steeped into us. We question the trustworthiness of authority because we're taught to value individuality and freedom and autonomy and the lovely irony of all of that is all these individuals mistrusting authority received that message from an authority that taught them to distrust an authority and often that's not pointed out and I'm just putting it out as bonus money but we don't trust authority, it's bred into us. It's the air we breathe and, and so we're taught to embrace critical thinking and a posture of suspicion especially toward those in power. And sometimes this really does serve us well, doesn't it? Because let's be honest, not every authority should be trusted. Power can be misused. Power can manipulate. Power can subject us to the desires of another that are not always for our best interest. And there are abounding examples of a misuse of power and authority in the world, even in the church. So when I say give your identity, give your body to Christ... I realize this is a lot to ask in a culture that is suspicious of authority. Surrender yourself to another. It's a lot to ask. So why can we trust Christ's supremacy over us, including all things? Well, think about ballet dancers. Over the course of their lives, from childhood through adolescence into adulthood, they submit to their instructors and they practice, and they practice, and they practice. And through discipline and repetition, they condition their bodies. And they make sacrifice, albeit sometimes unhealthy ones, but they sacrifice to conform their bodies to dance. And then together, they submit their bodies to the vision of a choreographer and director. Each body keeps in line with the steps given to them. And in doing so, when they stay in step, when they do what is required of their particular body, not deviating from the vision, something that transcends each dancer emerges, something beautiful, the vision of the choreographer. And this is why we can experience joy or boredom, but mostly joy, you know, <laughs> watching Swan Lake or Gazelle or the Nutcracker, or if these are like two lowbrow, like, popular culture ballet, you know, like the movie Step It Up. Like, <laughs> this is why visions of dance can emerge. This is why we can enjoy anything like that. Because people surrender their bodies to an authority, and then something beautiful comes out of it. It's similar to us under Christ as his body. Jesus has a vision for what our life can be together. And as we come under his authority, as we give our bodies to his body, his immeasurable power works at in, in our lives and a vision of a beloved community emerges. A vision of a community that looks more and lives more and loves more like Christ. As all the parts of the body work together under him, they reveal the beauty of his vision, a redeemed humanity. And so the power of Christ brings about beauty within his body. And this is one reason we can trust his authority, because when we give our bodies to him, he's going to do something beautiful through them. But if you're still suspicious, if you're still feeling guarded toward giving your identity and your body to Christ, I want to suggest something else. Think about the portrait of Jesus described by Paul. How does God use his power? If you're suspicious of power, how does God use his power in Christ? 
God uses his power to become one of us. He uses his power to become small, to share in our humanity, even in our weakness. He surrenders his body to a cross. And there God uses his power to forgive sins, to break the powers that oppress us, to overcome evil, to defeat death, to liberate us into eternal life and love. This is the power of God on display in a human body. God doesn't lord his power over us or crush us or making, make us begrudging, subservient plebes. No, he saves us by surrendering himself to death on a cross. That is how God uses his power. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe and this can be God's power on display in your body, as the church, as our body. Jesus, he's above everything. I hope you see that this morning. The head of the body of the church, he's supreme. He's over all things. And yet, he's given to us, given to us. He's there for the taking. Do you believe this? Is Christ the defining, inspiring, ruling, guiding, sustaining power of your body? I hope so. And if not, I just invite you to pray all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. And take your next right step with him. We can offer our bodies together as a sacrifice to him, our head. We're called to glorify him in our body. I want to remind you that any sacrifice Christ asks us to make in our bodies is always for our flourishing. It's always for good and beautiful purposes. And any sacrifice we're asked to make in Scripture, any command, any instruction, anything at all, it can only seem like too much to ask or too cumbersome or too burdensome or even regressive when we lose sight of the one who is asking. Jesus Christ is head over the body, over the church. He's given us, like he's given himself to us. And he's going to make something beautiful out of it. So friends, may we glorify Christ in our bodies as his body. Let's pray.